I want to take as my text this morning that reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 8, verses 1 through 3, and 9, verses 6 through 11. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find the beginning of that text on page 1149. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 9, verses 6 through 11 which I'd like to read again, beginning at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And so Paul is shifting here and talking about stewardship in chapters 8 and 9. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, or brothers and sisters, as the case may be, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Chapter 9 and at verse 6. And the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Everyone must give as he's made up in his own mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written... He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. And so he who supplies seed to the sower, that is the farmer, and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce Thanksgiving to God. <laughs> and so this morning we're beginning our annual stewardship series, and this year our subject, simply put, is biblical giving. Biblical giving. Indeed, at, at Holy Cross, the Bible features large within our common life together, and I expect that most of us would say that the Bible and what it has to say about things really matters. And so what does the Bible have to say about giving and faithful financial stewardship? And assuming that the Bible does have something to say about giving, and it most certainly does, then what would it mean for any of us to be biblical givers? And so that's what we're going to be considering today and for the next two Sundays. This morning I want us to notice that to give biblically is to give generously, that to give biblically is to give generously, which was certainly true about the believers in the churches located in the Roman province of Macedonia, as Paul mentions in our text. That is, the believers that, uh, and the churches that he founded in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, as that's recorded for us in the book of Acts in chapters 16 and 17. 
Indeed, Paul says in our text that the believers in Macedonia were generous givers. And because their generosity is recorded for us in the Bible, they provide for us an example of what, we, uh, what it means to engage in biblical giving. Indeed, notice again what he says about them in chapter 8 and beginning at verse 1. In fact, he's using the Macedonians. He's talking to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are in Achaia, or what we would now know as the southern part of Greece. And the Macedonians lived in what we would think of as the northern part of Greece. But he's using them, using the Macedonians as an example to prompt and to encourage the Corinthians to do the same thing, <laughs> to give generously. And so he tells about them. In chapter 8 and verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Indeed, in, even in the midst of severe testing and affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, they gave beyond their means, and that without being prompted <laughs> of their own free will. And so the believers in Macedonia were generous givers. And that was true, the Apostle Paul says, is because the grace of God was active and alive in their lives and within their congregations. Indeed, that, that no doubt is the reason why they didn't have to be prompted because God was prompting them. And uh, maybe you know people like that whose lives have been changed. The grace of God is active in their lives, and God is the one that is prompting them and moving them as they reflect upon the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave, that God is a giver. And isn't that beautiful? And he gave to me, and I want to do that. I want to give the way God gives. And then the apostle Paul, when he preached in our church, he said that, that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Hey, what do you think? Let's do that. And so the word of God is, is in their hearts and bearing fruit in their lives. And they were doing what they were doing, Paul says, because the, the work of God's grace was present in their congregations. And Paul says that the Macedonian believers uh, were generous givers, givers even though uh, their personal experience uh, were, were ones of great difficulty. Indeed, they were a persecuted church, and we see that in the book of Acts. And their following Christ uh, caused a lot of trouble in their community, and yet they stayed with him. But it caused them a lot of trouble, and seemingly it caused them uh, some economic problems. Not only were they persecuted, and, and yet Paul describes them as joyful. <laughs> we get to suffer the way the Lord suffered, but also they were impoverished. And still Paul says that they gave generously. This is a very interesting sociological fact that people who have less tend to give more when you, when you compare their percentages. And just because people have money doesn't mean they're generous. Generosity and wealth don't naturally go together. But here they were in this state of, of, of impoverishment and yet Paul describes their giving practices 
as generous. Indeed, notice again verses 2 and 3. For in a severe test of affliction, <laughs> where they might have been distracted by that. Like, God, I'm not going to give generously. Look, can't you like, you know, like protect us or something? For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, they gave beyond their means, and that of their own free will. And so to give biblically is to give generously. And the believers in Macedonia are a New Testament example of this principle who, as Paul describes it, they gave according to their means and even beyond their means, and that both willingly and joyfully. And then Paul says that the generous giving is a spiritual practice that's rooted in the biblical principle of the harvest. You're familiar with the biblical principle of the harvest, aren't you? <laughs> Notice again, 2 Corinthians and chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. And the point is this, he says. In fact, I checked this. Four translations have used those very words when translating the Greek. This is the point, <laughs> Paul is saying. And the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. This is an, ag an agricultural metaphor. Uh, the way in which they planted seed, whether there was grapes or or barley, or wheat, or whatever it was. They would go out and they would prepare their soil, and then they would sow the seed. We, we think of seed being planted, but they would sow it. They would have a, a bag full of seed, and they would throw it. <laughs> they throw it. And in fact, when Jesus talks about the parable of the sower, the sower, the sower is so generous with the seed, the, the seed goes on the road, and the seed goes in the weeds, and the seed goes on the rocks. And the seed, of course, also falls on the good soil. And out of the good soil comes, uh, comes, a, comes a harvest of some 30, some 60, and 100 fold. But this is what he's talking about. The sowing of seed like a, like a farmer. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. And so, as opposed to generously. And so, you, you keep most of the seed in your bag. And you don't invest it in the, in the, in the crop, in the harvest. And so you, you know, just a, a few. You know, these seeds are expensive, you know. Right? Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly when the harvest time comes. A field mostly of dirt, if you like. <laughs> whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And each one must give as he has made up his mind. He's talking about giving and using this metaphor of the sowing. Each one must give as he has made up in his own mind, not giving reluctantly or under some kind of pressure or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiency in all things, 
at all times, having everything you need, you may abound in every good work. And then he quotes Psalm 112 and verse 9, as it is written, he, and this is a description of the man or the person who fears God. In fact, that's exactly how the Psalms, this is what, this, if you wanted to know what does it look like when somebody fears and respects God, and then this description is given, and by the time you get to the ninth verse, you find out that the, that the person who fears God is generous. He has distributed freely, <laughs> freely, and he's given to the poor. And his righteousness endures forever. It's very, very interesting. His righteousness endures forever. He gives what he's got. He gives it away. <laughs> but the righteousness that he's, is established by him acting in this way that is pleasing to God is something that while he'll leave everything behind when he dies or when God comes, when we move from this age and go into the next, no one brings anything into the world and no one takes anything out. But his righteousness, who he is in his character, endures forever. Verse 10, and he, that is God, who supplies seed to the sower, supplies seed to the farmer, and bread for food. That's what you do with the wheat that you harvest. God supplies all of that. In fact, this is a direct quote from Isaiah 55 and verse 10. Whoever, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply, number one, and multiply your seed. He will supply your seed, he will supply your food, and he will multiply your seed for sowing. He's referring again to giving. Seed for sowing and increasing the harvest of your righteousness, just like the person described in Psalm 112 and verse 9, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity or so that you can carry out your generosity, which through us, that is Paul and his companions, his fellow apostles, and through us, will this will produce a thanksgiving to God. When we see this in your lives, we will go, wow, that's great. We will celebrate the grace of God active in your life. Now, the harvest principle is simple and pretty straightforward. You're familiar with it. You'll probably be able to finish this. Right? Whatever a man sows, say it loud. I'm hard of hearing. I, did I tell you I was 59? And I ride a motorcycle, so this is what I hear. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Right? Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We find this principle in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. It is a biblical principle. Essentially, it is a principle of cause and effect, right? If you sow grape seeds, what do you get? You get grape vines. If you sow wheat, you get wheat. If you sow a lot, you get a large harvest. And if you sow a little, you get a meager harvest. As Paul says in verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap 
bountifully. And so Paul says that those who sow sparingly reap sparingly. Those who sow generously will reap generously. The point being that those who give generously will reap a generous harvest with God. In the day of the harvest, in the day of judgment, and those who give sparingly will not. And so Jesus said, gave this gave us this admonition, as was our gospel reading just moments ago from Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, and beginning at verse 19. And Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, which is usually what we're focused on. <laughs> he said, like, Jesus, you're so insensitive. <laughs> no, he's trying to do us a favor. <laughs> And we don't realize he's doing us a favor because it's just so counterintuitive, not to mention countercultural. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In fact, the thieves are breaking in and stealing more often than they were maybe a couple of years ago. <laughs> so maybe this rings a little truer these days. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Do you, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you make deposits in heaven? By giving your money away the way God would have you to do it. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. <laughs> The surest thing you can do with your resources is to give them away in the way that God directs and you will never lose the dividend, ever. At the beginning of this year, I lost everything that I had gained in the year before. Was I the only one that experienced that? I see some no, that happened to me too. Yeah. Pretty vulnerable, right? And we keep watching it, and I, then I don't want to watch it. You know? It's like, oh, it's up 400 points today, da, 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 and down 800 the next. So we're like, wait a minute, this is not working. But what I give as God directs, and what you give as God directs, is something that cannot be destroyed or rot, rotted or stolen. And Paul says that generous giving begins with us making a personal commitment. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens very, very deliberately. Indeed, notice uh, uh, verse 7 of chapter 9. Each one of you, each one of you Corinthian believers, each one of you at Holy Cross Church, each one must give as he's made up in his mind or her mind, and not reluctantly, are under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so generous giving begins with a personal heartfelt decision, like, you know what, I, I'm going to do this. I've been listening to him for 14 years, and once a year for 14 years. I, you know what, let's do this, let's get this done. Let's do this. And so generous giving begins with a personal heartfelt decision, a commitment. Setting aside reluctance. In fact, that's part of the reason why people don't make the commitment, because of reluctance. 
They're afraid. Oh, my gosh, you know, what's going to happen if we obey God? <laughs> hey, you know what? Don't worry about what's going to happen if you obey God. Worry about what's going to happen if you don't obey God. That's the message of the, old, of the prophets and Jesus <laughs> and the apostles. Isn't it it's so strange? God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Duh! When we get to the place where we're worried about what's going to happen when we obey, and we're not worried about what, what, what's going to happen when we don't obey, we've got everything upside down. And so Paul says, don't do it reluctantly. Do it wholeheartedly. And don't, and don't allow yourself to be pressurized externally. Don't let it be, don't, don't do it from guilt and shame and any other kind of a negative, negative uh, impression. I don't, you know, by the way, I, I hope, God, I, I've never had anybody accuse me of it. I, and I hope that, I hope that I can't be accused. I don't like being shamed. That is not a, that does not motivate me. Shaming and guilting. And so I, I, I don't, I hope, I don't practice it. I, want to, I don't want to be pushed from behind. I want to be drawn forward into the things that God is calling me to do. And, and as that's happening in my life, and, as I, and that's my number one thing, by the way. I've mean, got lots of responsibilities, but that's the number one thing. To chase after God and to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. And then I turn around to you occasionally and say, hey, you want to come join me? <laughs> I give because it's, it's glorious <laughs> and a joy. And the things that Paul is describing have been my experience even before I read this stuff. You know why? Because it's true whether you've read it or not. And so setting aside all external pressure from somebody, you know, telling you to give generously because God wants us to give with joy, Paul, Paul says. As Paul says here, he says, because God loves a cheerful giver, or as Peterson in the message put it, God loves it when the giver delights in giving. <laughs> It's like, wow, you're it, 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 it thrills the heart of God that other people are thrilled by the things that thrill him. You think he gives because he doesn't like to? He loves giving. He loves, so, he loves giving so much that he gives and seldom waits around for a thank you. Good night. I mean, if, you thought it, if, it, if you've ever thought it was contingent on a thank you, I think God probably would have stopped a long time ago. But he gives, and that's the definition of grace, by the way. One-way love. And the biblical promise in all of this is that when we commit to generous giving, God promises to provide. Indeed, notice again verses 8 through 11. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency, having everything that you need in all things and at all times. I was concerned about something the other day and Linda said, when has he ever let us down? <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. She and I have been married for 30, 
32 years, I couldn't, and boy, we did, we've done some risky things in our lives relative to ministry and God and all of that. And giving has always been central to our spiritual disciplines. No regrets. In fact, God, as I've said before, messes it all up. You know, I'm, I'm going to make a big sacrifice for you. But then this is what he does. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency, everything that you need, and all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, the person who fears God has distributed freely. He's given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, that is, so that you can continue being generous, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And so when we commit to generous giving, God supplies all our needs. That certainly has been my experience, sometimes it's just supernatural, like, well, like, where did that come from? Money sent, money given, people saying, well, come live with us. <laughs> when I was, I was, uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, I was, uh, I had come from a small uh, uh, theological college that wasn't accredited, and so I was having trouble getting into seminary. And so I had a meeting was scheduled with the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is one of the largest theological seminaries in the world. And uh, so uh, the, uh, my story was told, and Dr. Campbell, this is in the mid-'80s, he said, well, go on and fill out all the application forms and so on, and, and uh, I'll uh, have a talk with the admissions department. <laughs> So he said, let's give this kid a chance, you know. And so they put me on academic probation for a, for a semester, and then that was the, the end of that. The problem was is that I was all behind, and so I was, I, was, um, I was accepted two days before orientation. This is Dallas, Texas, and I'm in Oakland, California. That's a bit of a hike, at least in the 76 Monte Carlo. <laughs> So uh, I'm, I quit my job two days or two weeks before I was accepted at Dallas Seminary. Oh, did you get accepted? No, I didn't get accepted. Why are you quitting? Because God is going to open the door and I'm going to Dallas Theological Seminary. I bought all kinds of supplies and everything. So I'm calling every day. This is Scott Thompson. Just call it, make it. Thompson's on the phone again. Did his, uh, did his application, did his, uh, has that been approved? Now, Scott, uh, yeah. No, yeah, not yet. Okay, talk soon, bye. I'm calling them every day. Finally, two days before orientation, they said, yes, Scott, you have been accepted. I said, praise God. And uh, so they said, well, where would you like us to send your letter of acceptance? And I said, well, just keep it. I'm coming, you know. I said, I got everything packed in my room. I didn't put it in the car yet because I didn't want to drive around town with this stuff. But it's all there. I'm ready to go. And uh, 
well, where will you be staying? They said. I said, well, I'm going to stay at the dorms. They said, well, the dorms have been all taken up since May uh, earlier this year. And I said, oh, really? I said, well, I'll ring you back. Because <laughs> so, I didn't know where I was going to go. So I called my pastor and said, hey, I've been accepted, praise the Lord, but I've got no place to stay. And he said, well, let me make a telephone call. In the meantime, get in the car and come on over. So he lived on the other side of town. So I got in the car and I made my way. In the meantime, he's calling Charles and Lois Pittman, living at, uh, uh, at Hill, Hill, it's not Hillcrest, is it Hill, Hillcrest in LBJ? A very nice neighborhood. And uh, when I got there, he's on the phone with Dr. Howard, and, and, uh, and Dr. Howard says, here, say hi to Charles. Now, I didn't know anybody from Texas or anything like that, and so I got on the phone, I said, Mr. Pitman, he said, hey, buddy, how you doing? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm doing fine, I just was, I just found out that I've been accepted to Dallas Theological Seminary. He said, I heard you don't have a place to stay. And I said, that's right, sir. And he said, well, why don't you come on and stay with us until you get yourself sorted out? He said, do you need a car? I said, no, I got a 76 Monte Carlo. So, so I, I said, no, I got, I got the car thing okay. And uh, so I drove down and arrived a day, the day of the first day of, of, um, of uh, orientation. So I missed that and met them. And I began, you can't believe this, I began talking. Uh, and... Uh, and sharing my story and talking about what God was doing in my life and the ministries I was involved in and, and so on and so forth and what I felt that God was calling me to do. And so anyway, the next day I went to orientation and after I got back from orientation, they were going to go, they had a little sailboat, so they were going to go uh, and go in this sailboat and going to be away with friends for a couple of days and they had dogs and Charles had these beautiful hanging plants and he was very much into his garden and so so you showing me how to water that and take care of the dogs and when we came back into the kitchen Lois his wife said well I guess you're going to be our son and I lived with them for free of charge for four years until I was married to Linda that after those four years well, I have no idea what it would have cost me, all that air conditioning and living in that beautiful neighborhood and so on. But God provided. And that's what he does. God supplies all our needs. And by the way, leading up to that, I was giving in what some people might consider an inordinate percentage of my income. I wasn't looking for God, some, I just wanted, God just, I want your favor in my life. By the way, I wasn't making that much money, it was, the percentage was high. It wasn't a lot of money. But it was money that I couldn't spend on anything or even put toward the schooling, and yet God provided this. Because that's what God does. When you commit to this, God provides. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, Paul writing to these, one of the Macedonian churches who had, were sending him regular support said, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Proverbs 11 and verse 24, one gives freely yet grows all the richer while another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. <laughs> I, w I, 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 I don't think, I, well, I don't know. It hasn't come into my mind yet to think that I could save money by not giving what God has called us to give. 
So you just write the check to, to Holy Cross and then the checks to all the other things, and it's a great huge blessing. St. <laughs> John of the Cross said famously, all good things come to me now that I no long, because I no longer seek them for myself. Paul says that when we commit to generous giving, God not only will supply, but he gives us more than we need so that we can keep the commitment that we've made. That's exactly what this text is saying. He says he supplies and then he multiplies. He gives you what you need and then you commit to him and give the way he calls you to give and then he gives you what you need in order to keep the commitments that you've made. And everyone who's made that commitment would all say, well, of course. <laughs> it was the Apostle Paul who said in writing to Timothy famously, and godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. I'm supposing that uh, perhaps this was a passage that C.S. Lewis had in the back of his mind when he wrote this in his famous book, Mere Christianity. He wrote, the only things we keep are the things that we freely give to God. Let me read that again. The only things we keep are the things that we freely give to God, while what we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. It was Jim Elliot who wrote famously in his diary before he went off from Illinois to Ecuador as a missionary in the, up in the mountains and talking to people that were practically untouched until at the age of 28 he was murdered by those people that he was trying to reach and then his wife went back after his murder to continue trying to reach them. But this is what he wrote while he was still back in the States preparing. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. <laughs> and still money is something that keeps many a Christian from advancing in the Christian life because money is God's great rival. It's all about God and money. In fact, Jesus says famously, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I have, I have thought about that and I've often thought to myself, why is it that he says God and money? Why doesn't he say God and lust? Why doesn't he say God and pride? Why doesn't he say God and some other thing and put that opposite God? Because the thing that's the greatest rival of God <laughs> is money. And so before any of us can advance with God, we must decide whether our relationship with money will determine our relationship to God or our relationship with God will determine our relationship to money. And so I wonder, where does your commitment lie? And what do you treasure most? Money? Or God? To give biblically is to give generously.
Let us pray. We may say, you know, Lord, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you're all I need. <laughs> or some other thing that we might sing in a song, the tune of which we like, and we sing the words, Lord, but maybe it's not true. And maybe we need to examine that. Because if it's not true, then we're acting upon a lie, not upon the truth. And one would have to wonder, and so what comes of that? But the things that we read in the, the apostolic witness and the words of your son are very poignant and very straightforward and they're meant to be. Thank you, Lord, for not beating around the bush because uh, we're already, already inclined to self-deception. We, we don't need you to be deceptive too. And you are true. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to respond to that truth, that we would be true as well, and then find that all of your promises are true. To your glory and our rejoicing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.